My interview with Kirk Bloodsworth originally aired on March 20th of 2017. Kirk, of course, was a guy who was sentenced to death and was the first DNA death row exoneree in America. Um, His story has to be heard to believe. You may not even be able to believe it after you hear it, but it's a phenomenal story. He's a phenomenal guy. I'm happy to say that he and I have become very close ever since this episode aired, and even, I guess, before. But today, Kirk is an accomplished jewelry artisan. He's an activist, a writer, and a public speaker on issues of wrongful conviction and the death penalty. He makes these incredible rings. He has uh, exoneree rings and also death row exoneree rings that so many of the exonerees wear. And I think you'd have to ask them, but, you know, I know how much it means to them to have these beautiful pieces of jewelry made by one of their own. I mean, nobody should ever have to wear that ring, but if you've been through that, I think it's a powerful statement that you can wear on your finger. In 2019, Kirk was named the Interim Executive Director of Witness to Innocence, a group of death row exonerees who advocate to end the death penalty and have been successful in a number of states already. So their work is phenomenal. Kirk, you're one of my heroes. Keep up the great work. The Kakadu Plum is an Australian native superfood containing 100 times more vitamin C than oranges. So why have you never heard of it? PR. No one's drinking a Kakadu smoothie? I'm J.B. Smoove, and that was a full episode of my new podcast, Straightforward. Inspired by guaranteed straightforward pricing from AT&T Fiber. Get what you want without the complicated. AT&T Fiber, live like a gagillionaire. Available wherever you get your podcast. Limited availability in select areas. Visit at slash hypergig for details. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought... In that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. You know you've got a comeback in you. When you take the next step, you're going to make it count for your career, for your family, for your life. You can earn a degree you're proud of with Purdue Global. Purdue Global is backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected and innovative public universities. This is your chance. This is your opportunity. This is your comeback. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. With the police banging on the door. Open up. The choice to be in that lineup was the last choice I made as a free man. A year later, I ended up right in the system. I'm going to be one of those people who everyone in the world is going to think is a monster or suspect is a monster for the rest of my life, and I'm just going to have to come to peace with that. Somebody was able to look at my picture in a database and say that I was somewhere where I definitely wasn't. I overheard three of the jailers discussing what part they might have to play in my hanging. They had been told that two prison officers would have to participate in my execution. And I walked back inside that prison for the last time, man. All hell broke loose, man. Welcome back to Wrongful Conviction with Jason Flom. Our guest today is an extraordinary man, Kirk Bloodsworth. 
Twice he was convicted of the 1984 murder and sexual assault of nine-year-old Don Hamilton. Convicted of murder, he spent nearly nine years in prison, including two on death row. In 1993, DNA testing exonerated him. It was not available at the time of the 1984 crime. One advocate for abolishing the death penalty is Kirk Noble Bloodsworth, the first person whose capital conviction was ever overturned because of DNA. Kirk, welcome to the show. Glad to be here, Jason. Thanks for having me. So when I say Kirk is an extraordinary man, that takes on a number of meanings. Kirk has the distinction, I guess you would call it, of being the first DNA exoneree from death row in the United States. Chew on that for a second, right? Yeah. First DNA exoneree from death row. Now, by way of background, Kirk was a U.S. Marine, honorably discharged, had no issues with the law or anything else at the time that he was arrested and ultimately convicted in a gruesome crime, sexual assault and murder of a nine-year-old girl. And in his case, the police overlooked, is a nice way to say it, a guy who would have been the obvious suspect and who turned out to be the actual killer. So, Kirk, let's go back. This story takes place quite a while ago because your life took a horrible turn in 1984. But let's go back even before that. Give a little context how you grew up. How'd you end up in the Marines? Well, my dad was a Marine. So, you know, he regaled all those stories about Marines and being in the Marine Corps in Paris Island. So... You served for how many years? Four years and two years reserve. Right. So you're in the Marines, you come out, and you're back home in Maryland, right? Right. I want to become a crab fisherman, what we call a waterman on the eastern shore of Maryland, where I grew up in a small town called Cambridge. My father was a fisherman, his father, his father, and so on. And it goes back a couple hundred years, from what I understand. Everybody in Cambridge pretty much works in and around the water business, whether it's processing, whether it's catching the fish or delivering it. So my father crabbed and fished all his life. And there's even an island in the Chesapeake Bay named after my family called Bloodsworth Island. Wow. Yeah. So you had some deep roots, really, truly following in your father's footsteps, Indeed. like straight down the line. There you are back in Maryland, having served your country, honorably discharged. And your life took the most terrible turn that is really imaginable. I mean, yeah. it doesn't get worse. And that's one of the things that draws me to this work that I do with the Innocence Project is that I've, I never could and I still can't and I never will be able to imagine anything worse than being wrongly convicted and sent to prison, much less death row, for something you didn't do. And that's exactly what happened to you. Exactly. And let's talk about that because it seems so insane that you would become a suspect in a terrible, gruesome crime. I mean, I would think they would be looking for somebody who's got a history. This is not the type of crime that somebody just one day who's living a normal life is like, I'm going to go out and sexual assault and murder on, a, on, a, on really a young child. I mean, yeah. a nine-year-old. This, nine this is bad stuff. Her name so. is Dawn Hamilton, by the way. She was just a little girl out playing uh, a game of hide-and-go-seek. On July 25th, 1984, and 2.30 that afternoon, her friends, they were they were all playing this game. She was it. She couldn't find them, and she came back up to the house, according to her aunt that was watching her that day, and said, well, go back to the woods. This is, is in Baltimore County, Maryland. There's a wooded area, and there's a pond there called Beth Keys Pond. And she said, you go to the fence line, you holler in the woods and tell them to get out of there because they're not supposed to be in there. It's a... A lot of less savory fellas and people in that area. There was a lot of things happening in that woods. She didn't want her back there. So about a half an hour later, this was sometime around 11 or so in the morning, her friends came back and she did not. And at 2.30 that afternoon, they found her lying face down in a pile of leaves. Her head was crushed. She was nude from the waist down. Her clothes had been discarded in a tree not far from her body. And she was assaulted with a stick. That is what this honorably discharged Marine was charged with. And they were seeking a death penalty in my case. So how did this come about? Why you? My first wife, she was from Baltimore County. And she lived in and around the area of where this happened. I had just hitchhiked up there, 4th of July weekend, and wanted to be with my wife. You know, she had left Cambridge. She didn't like the waterman's life. It was 16-hour days all summer. 
I was hardly home. I was crabbing, you know, and working. And uh, she couldn't stand it. She was from the city, and it's a little different where she was from. And she wanted to go back home. And so I put her on her bus and sent her back home. I just got pining over her and uh, wanted to go back. So I hitchhiked with the shoes on my feet, and that was it, that I had an old pair of discus shoes. And I got dropped off. I got a ride and dropped off, and that was the 4th of July weekend. I had just got paid from this crabber that I was working for, just a couple hundred bucks because the season just started. And it wasn't really much going on yet. She wasn't really happy to see me, as it turned out, and I was there for less than a month. Now, when Dawn was found that afternoon on July 25th, a search ensued for this person that was seen by two little boys. Now, there was a total of five eyewitnesses in this case who positively identified me as the last person seen with Dawn. I'd never seen her in my life, and I'm going to kind of like bring this together. So they were searching for a man, the little boys who had seen her. They were fishing in that pond I told you about. And Dawn had come along, asked them to help her find her friends. They declined. They had just caught this turtle, they said. And they were more interested in that. Now, they described this man as being six foot five, curly blonde hair, bushy mustache, tan skin, and skinny. Well, that last description would never fit me in no kind of way or the blonde hair. My hair was as red as the walls in this room. I have to tell you, I had sideburns down to here. I had a red mustache. I looked like the brawny man if I put on a flannel shirt. And you sure ain't 6'5". No. I'm six foot tall at best. And I weighed something like 230 pounds back then. I was a big kid, you know, 23 years old. So they arrest me on a Thursday. I was in Cambridge. My wife and I had broke up. I came back home. This was the week of August 8th. I would be arrested the next day on August 9th. And at 2.45 in the morning, waking up on the couch with the police banging on the door. Open up. It's the Baltimore County Police Department, they said. We have a warrant for arrest of Kirk Bloodsworth. And I go to the door myself. Lights are shining in my face. Step outside, Mr. Bloodsworth. Somebody called me a son of a bitch. And then that was the last time I seen Cambridge, Maryland for about eight years, 10 months, and 19 days. Now, they had showed the picture of a Polaroid, took a Polaroid shot of me when they questioned me the day prior. And they showed it to the two little boys. And they said, well, he looks like the guy, but his hair is too red. They still would not claimed that it was the picture. There ain't no way you can look at me in 1984 and not say that I had red hair. So they called each and every witness in the case. They told them not to watch television. We've arrested a suspect. By the way, his name is Kirk Bloodsworth. And this was a very high-profile case oh, as well. Goodness, I mean, we're talking yes. a small community. Nothing like this ever happens, right? Oh, they were uh, cope units. Everybody was searching for her, and understandably so. There was a lot of stuff going on at that time, and they didn't have any idea. But they did. They just never went back to check on anybody. There were so many suspects. So they called the witnesses and tell them not to watch TV because we arrest this suspect, and he's going to be on a lineup. On Monday, I was arrested on a Thursday. The lineup comes. Nobody identifies me. Some pick out police officers. They had four cops in my lineup. So the two main witnesses were the two little boys. They never identified me in the lineup. Two weeks later, their parents called the Baltimore County Police said our children have made a mistake. It's really number six, and that's the position I stood in. So the parents were in the lineup with the kids? Mm-hmm. Yeah, they wouldn't let the little kids in there. Well, and they also drove home together and drove to the place together. There was a lot of different things. What I know of law enforcement, you never put witnesses in the same room to try to identify anybody. This whole thing really started from the older child making a composite sketch. That circulated in the area, and there was 500 tips that came on a tip line. What directed this whole thing toward me was a next-door neighbor calling the police and saying that, That composite sketch looks like my neighbor, Kirk. That's how it all began, by somebody pointing a finger at me. Right. That's exactly how it all began, and that's where it all started to put everybody on notice that they wanted to get you. Once they had that, 
they were like, all right, we got a lot of pressure. We got to get somebody, right? Because this is going to be pandemonium in the community. Nobody wants their kid to be next, mm. right? Yeah. This is a real, real bad guy out there. But right. it's hard to imagine how someone in law enforcement, anyone in law enforcement, mm-hmm. in a community like that, like Cambridge, Maryland, which is probably like a lot of other communities around the country, if you know that you've got a guy in your midst who is capable of the most terrible crime imaginable, which is exactly what happened here, I would think that you would be laser focused on making sure you got the right guy. If for no other reason, then your family might be next. If you just Because by definition, if you work in law enforcement in a particular community, you live in that community. And everybody's got some kind of family, even if you're not married or don't have kids, you may have a sister or a niece or a nephew or whatever the hell it is, and you don't want that person to fall victim. And I think that most law enforcement people are, you know, they certainly get into it for the right reasons. No one gets into it to get rich, and I think they want to do good, but sometimes in these cases... The pressure and the, I don't want to call it excitement, but the urge to solve it gets so, it overrides these commonsensical type of instincts. And these, and then somebody like you ends up locked up and the perpetrator goes free. And when the perpetrator is free, they're free to do it again. See, early on, they had, uh, there was numerous suspects in this case. There was over 500 tips that came in on the tip line. But there was a suspect, and there's this guy, came in eight days before I was arrested. And he had been released from prison or from jail uh, pending trial based on what two girls had said that he tried to accost them in bushes next to a rail yard. This was two weeks before Dawn's murder. He was let go and cut loose, and uh, they never went back to check. That was eight days before I was arrested. And uh, I tell you what, I can imagine that the Baltimore County Police Department still haunts them today for not doing that. Well, it would sure seem like, again, going back and comparing and contrasting, you have you on the one side, an honorably discharged Marine, and then on the other side, you got a guy who several days earlier was accused, not convicted yet, but accused. He was accused a year before. As well. But they couldn't, the, the children wouldn't testify against him, so they had to let him go. This woman seen him that day running and sweating profusely. He was later arrested three weeks after I was for another attempted murder and rape of a woman in Fells Point, Maryland, where he busted in her door and tried to cut her throat. And was he convicted of that crime? He was. Actually, the girl got the knife from him and somehow stabbed him in the foot, and they followed the blood to his house. Oh, that was, that was, well, that was she's a very brave woman. Well, and she's she's like, really a, a hero. She's in this a champ, case. and in my opinion, oh, I've yeah. never met her, but, no, but I don't know. But um, whoever she is, I hope she's listening, and she has yeah, a, a, my I respect, too. and I know yours yeah. too. I see yeah, your face absolutely. lighting up talking about it. So, yeah. so now things get really crazy, right? Oh, so yeah. here you are, you have no experience with the criminal justice system. None. Your family has no experience with the criminal justice system. And all of a sudden, you're locked up and you're not getting out. There's no bail. There's no, you're not going anywhere no until bail. they figure this out, right? And they're on a mission now to get you. So you weren't a wealthy guy. Mm-mm. I mean, you just I didn't have any money. Right. You were I just started before. fishing that summer and uh, we just got married. We were broke as you can get. My wife, Wanda, didn't have any money. Her parents and my father had a house, and he would eventually mortgage that house to try to help me. I had two trials, and my God, it just turned into a surrealistic nightmare So day one. Let's talk about when the story of how you first met your court-appointed lawyer, right? Because as right. everybody knows, if you can't afford a lawyer, the Constitution right. guarantees you the right to a lawyer doesn't necessarily guarantee you the right to a genius. Although, right. like I said, I always want to temper that by saying there are a lot of, it, a, lot there of are good, a lot of very talented public defenders out there, and they have a lawyers. thankless job and a brutal job. But in your case, you ended up with a clown. I Well, you know, I, I struck the lottery of incompetence, I'd have to say. Now, I want your listeners to picture a prison visiting room. This is my first visit with my court-appointed attorney. And he comes into the room through an archway that's eight foot high and about eight foot wide. We have to talk through a glass and on a telephone type of application to talk. He sits with his back to a brick wall. And the first thing out of his mouth, he says, Kirk, you're in a lot of trouble. I thought that was very astute of him right off the bat. But he says, don't worry. I know my way around a courtroom. I know my way around a criminal justice system. And we're going to find our way out of here together. 
And I actually, it made me feel a little better. He was really up on his heels. He was going to help me prove my innocence. Right before he leaves, he reiterated the same thing. He says, Kirk, I know my way around a courtroom. I know my way around a criminal justice system. We're going to find our way out of here together. He put his hand on the glass as a gesture to say goodbye. He picked up his briefcase, turned around, and ran right into the wall. (laughs) He wouldn't talk to me. That was only one of three visits this man came to see me in the eight months it took to send me to death row. The trial lasted two weeks. And when the gavel came down on my life, man, the courtroom erupted in applause. Like if we were at some game and somebody scored a winning touchdown for the team that everybody liked. They had quite the uh, arsenal against me. I had that guy. They couldn't find his way out of the jail. I don't see how in the world you can make justice come from that situation. It's like shooting a slingshot up at a howitzer from on the top of a hill that's 100 feet high. You cannot win that way. And that's the way they set up a lot of these cases. Uh, And that's why so many people end up pleading guilty because they they realize that their odds of winning are so infinitesimally small as yours were in this case. And I think your David and Goliath analogy is pretty good, except for there's no winning in this case. There's no No. happy ending. So Dawn Hamilton was the one that lost. Her memory uh, lives on. Indeed. And, uh, and, And I think that when justice was finally done in this case... That's the uh, that's the only thing we can we can do to honor her memory, I guess, is to right. actually get the real guy off the streets. So now you're convicted and sentenced to death. And for you, it was as bad as it can get. In 1985, the Maryland Penitentiary in Maryland was probably one of the worst prisons in the United States at that time. A guard had been disemboweled two weeks before I got there. Jesus. From a perceived insult from another inmate. I walked on this tier when I stepped off the bus and when I stepped, I had to hop as I had leg irons, waist chain, cuffs, and so forth. And you have to kind of like penguin walk through this place till you get to your cell. And they lock you right in and they put me on that same wing that he was killed on. Now, I can tell you all that my life expectancy was not supposed to be, I wasn't supposed to be alive after nine years, basically. I mean, because of what I was charged with. Right. In prison, of course, the pecking order, the bottom of the pecking order is people who are charged with exactly what you were charged with, which is which is hurting, harming, or, or, or even worse, sexually assaulting a child, and of course, snitches. Right. right? Those are the people that That's are right. at, at the highest risk of being killed right. inside. You're on the bottom of the rungs of the ladder. You're, you're under the feet of the ladder. Right. Versus. And here you are. But you're looking at one of the only cats that ever walked out in population on his own. I remember my cell buddy next door to me. He said, man, you're crazier than a, a hoot out. You can't go out there. I said, I don't care. I'm going to fight this standing up one way or the other. They can fight me for anything they want, but they're not going to fight me for, for what I didn't do. And it just never came right away. It never came right away. I've seen a lot of horror and a lot of stuff. I, now, I'm going to use his nickname because I don't want to tell his real name. So his name is Blue. Blue taught me how to play chess. Now, Blue was six foot five. He's a big boy. And really tall, read all the time. He's always in, taught me a lot of stuff about prison life and what to, who to mess with, who not to mess with. When I say he taught me to play chess, you're probably wondering how that happened because I'm in a cell, he's in a cell. They put death row prisoners on administrative segregation to suicide. So he taught me how to play by calling the pieces out. So we had to call a man pawn four and so forth. And then he would tell me what he was doing. Now, he also taught me about the law, he was a, one of the leaders from the Nation of Islam. You know, he was a heavy hitter in there. He'd been there like 20 years. And one day when I got off a lockup and he come off and he had come to the chow hall and he tapped me on the shoulder and he said, Bloodsy, he said, I'm leaving today. That's what some of the people called me. And I said, man, what are you talking about? Because he was a three-time loser. He was never going to get out. I didn't want to argue with Blue because he was six foot five. He had the most intense eyes of anybody i ever seen. Like Samuel L. Jackson's the closest thing I could think of now. But think of Samuel L. Jackson's eyes if they were caramel color, and that was blue. He was intense, man. When he would talk to you, his eyes would get big. And, and he told me, he said, I'm going home today. 
He said, I got a peel bonds. I'm out of here. I bumped knuckles with him, and uh, I said, man, I hope to see you and play chess in the Inner Harbor someday, you know. And he went back to his cell. I went back to the library where I worked. And he packed up all his stuff. He made a chess set out of state soap. Some of the best artists in the world are in prison. He carved this out of a disposable razor blade he took out of a razor. He got dressed in his three-piece suit, put on his kufi, sat down, tied his tie up, and then took two, two, number two pencils and shoved them right through his eyes. unbelievable. I mean, that's why I had to pause for a second. I think I've heard that story before, but it seems impossible for a human being to do that to themselves. Well, but, in Blue's mind, that was the way to get out. He thought it was going to kill him, see. He was going to, he was trying to commit suicide, is what it, was, what it was all about. I had seen him about a year later, and instead of that really intense, caramel-colored eye man that I knew were walking through the hallway, bent over now, and there's only these gray spots in his eyes and I asked him I said Blue why did you do that man he said it was echoed through that hallway in the hospital he said I didn't want to see it anymore I didn't want to feel it anymore I didn't want to be it anymore and the revelation that came to me from what he said after I watched him hobble away with the nurse down the hallway was uh, how was I going to do it Blue was guilty he knew it he knew he had messed his life up, but I hadn't done anything. And uh, he turned around and said, you'll make it one day, with a smile looking at the wall, thinking I was standing close to him. And this was our life in penitentiary. You had witnessed guys jumping off the tier and yeah. all sorts of other horrors. Yep, hang your body, boot laces, and there was plenty of people that killed themselves. I knew one guy that took a bunch of sedatives and taped a plastic bag around his head and, and just fell asleep. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house. And I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The 2024 presidential campaign features two candidates who are very well known to Americans. And yet... There's complexity at every turn. Criminal trials for one of those candidates. Young voters who are angry. The Campaign Moment podcast from The Washington Post gives you what matters. I'm Aaron Blake, and I'm covering my 10th election cycle. My colleagues and I have insights that you won't find anywhere else. So follow the Campaign Moment right now, wherever you're listening. So it was... Uh... It was as terrible and as terrifying a situation as anybody could ever find themselves in, but you had to find a way out. You were not in a position to give up. I mean, if you'd give up, the state would have killed you, and that would have been, we wouldn't be here talking about it now. Well, I never had a chance to go to death row because I turned my case over. 
and my case was overturned by discovery evidence. So I got a second trial, but the same people came to testify. They were seeking the death penalty again. They wanted to kill me bad and shut me up because I would not shut up. I was convicted again, and this time I was sentenced to double life in the second trial. But I still was going to die in prison. An innocent man had nobody didn't, and they put me out in regular population. They did everything they could, I thought. Well, they were thinking somebody else would kill you if they couldn't right. do it, right? And, and right. a double life, that's a crazy thing, too, right? I mean, nobody, well, has, a, nobody has two lives. You can't do that, you know, no matter what you do. I don't even know what that means. You can't, go, you can't die and come back to life and then die again. But if they could have, they would have. They would have executed you twice, too, they if they could have gotten sure. away with it. Yeah, sure. but so so then you got your sentence overturned, so now, now you go back. It's sort of like a... I mean, it's like a Pyrrhic victory, right? I mean, you win, but you lose. I mean, and plus, on top of everything else, you're a young guy. So you got to right. look forward now to if you survive and if somebody doesn't kill you in prison or you don't get sick or anything else that could happen right. or you don't go crazy and lose your mind like Blue did, you're looking forward to 50 years of this absolutely miserable existence. These were consecutive life sentences. Right. So you can't get out of that. No, there's no, no way you can do it. You were dying. You're going to die in prison, that's but right. that. But obviously, that's not what happened because no. you're here. There's a fantastic, amazing story, sort of a miracle story, actually, about how you actually did manage to become the first DNA exoneree in the country. Yeah. And I'll never forget the story of how you were able to prove your innocence. I was a librarian for seven and a half years, so I read everything from Gestalt psychology to Stephen King. But Jason, don't ask me about that. Gestalt book, because I have no idea what the heck that thing was. <laughs> but I got this book in the mail one time, and it was written by Joseph Wombaugh, who was very famous back in the 70s. This book I read, he wrote about the first time DNA was ever used in a criminal case in England. And it was about these two murders, Linda Mann, and there's this other gal named Dawn, too. I read with rapt interest, and nobody could figure out who killed these two little girls over there. And then they were trying to find out how to catch them, and they couldn't catch this guy. So they got help from this professor. His name is Alec Jeffries. He is the founding father of what we know as genetic fingerprinting or DNA testing. I could not even spell dioxyribonucleic acid back then. He's the one that developed a new test that could genetically identify one person from another. And it was fascinating. He'd come up with this technology just by mistake doing some polymorphisms. Okay, somebody have to look that up about gray seals in the Antarctic. That's how it all came to pass. Wow. And so he said, told the consuls in the Scotland Yard, said, look, in Narborough, there's killings over there. I think we can identify them. We test the semen. Not only did he find the real culprit in this case, as it turns out, but there was a man who confessed to a crime, turned out to be a false confession. Not only did they exonerated him and caught the real killer who happened to be a baker to live right in town. What year was that? That was in 1985 or so. So the technology was catching up to me. I remember coming out of my bunk. I hit my head. I was reading a book, and I hit my head. I started remembering, and I'm getting chills right now on my arms, remembering the part in the book, and it just said uh, the, the DNA and the semen was found and all that. Then it popped in my head about the semen that was found on Dawn's body. In this case, slides, swabbings, many spermatozoa seen in closed quotes in the report I had right in front of me. I flipped out. I just I said, look. I got to get this test done. So I, I wrote the prosecutor who has since passed away. Her name was Ann Brobst. And I said, look, I need this test. She wrote me back a letter, and this is what she said, Jason. We regret to inform you that DNA has been inadvertently destroyed. I got so mad when I read that letter. I can still remember myself reading it and just like kind of resigning myself to the fact that I was going to die in this place. It was over. I didn't resign. I got madder. My face turned red again. I just, I threw everything in the corner. All my papers, all my books, every single thing, all my clothes, everything I had in my cell. I had a book of matches. I lit that sucker, and the book of matches went out. And then it hit me. I don't think they destroyed it. 
They just didn't know where it was. Let me go back for a second. So you lit the book of matches. You were going to set all your stuff on fire? Yeah. But the matches didn't work. They, they blew out. Huh. Amazing. How do you do that in a cell? I like to know. I always felt like somebody blew them out. Yeah, there's no, there was no wind in there. We know that. So. <laughs> Not that I know, except me. So I called Bob Morin, who was my lawyer. Now, this guy, he was a lawyer of some record, man. He was just smart as he could be. He's a, the chief judge in Washington, D.C., in the Superior Court right now. Wow. He's an awesome guy. And the quality of attorney that I had now was different. So I called Bob on the phone. I said, Bob, you got to go check. He already thought of it. He already thought of the DNA. And they said that it destroyed it. And I said, Bob, you better go check because if you don't, I'm going to call you 20 times a day versus 10. He went back to the Towson Courthouse in Baltimore County where I was tried. Sure enough, it wasn't there. He happened to pass my law clerk in my second trial, and they knew each other. He said, Bob, what are you doing here? He said, well, I'm looking for the Don Hamilton evidence in the Kirk Bloodsworth case. He said, well, I know where that's at. It's in the judge's closet in a paper bag in a cardboard box sitting in the floor. And there it was, the swabbings, the stick, all the stuff that I needed. And Jason, it was half of one cell that freed me. And I'm getting the chills now, right? So that's where the miracle comes in, right? The fact that he ran into the clerk in the first place, that he happened to ask him, how are you doing? What are you doing? What are you working on? And he told him, and then you know he knew where it was. I mean, it's incredible. It's synchronicity. It's serendipity. Mm-hmm. It's, it's a lot of stuff. But it also points to the fact that you could have very easily given up at the time when you were told that the evidence was gone, you'd have to be almost nuts to say, well, it's not gone. I'm, I'm telling you it's not gone. You just told it was gone by somebody who should know. But you didn't give up. And, I, and that's- I, I wouldn't stop because they had already hid evidence about us another suspect. That's why the case was overturned. That's what gave me the, the mindset to go and get them to check. Right. Well, that's how, that's how you got. That's how it was that's overturned. Right. Just to clarify, that's how it went from being a death sentence to a life sentence. Is right. because in the second trial, you were able to prove that they were that they had withheld evidence. They withheld evidence about and, another suspect. Right. And who was right at the crime scene the day of the murder? Now, of course, he wasn't a real culprit, but it took a year to do that test. So I get this posted note. It said, "Urgent. Call your attorney. Urgent." The guard stuck the post-it note in and slid it in the cell, and I got it, and he said, call your attorney. So I said, you got to let me out. I was a librarian, so he let me out. So I called Bob Morin on the phone, collect about a million times. If you knew Bob Morin, he's very quiet, very quiet, mild-mannered guy. And he was screaming on the other hand, Kirk, you're innocent, man. You're innocent. I knew that. Get me out of here. He said, the DNA test come back. You are innocent. And I just remember sitting there in a puddle. I told you, man, I've been telling you all the time. So he said, look, now this is new. Nobody's ever done this has been on a capital conviction before. So you can't tell anybody. Don't call anybody. Don't tell anybody. So I called everybody. <laughs> I wasn't going to, this is my life. And uh, I was going to live it the way I want. Who would you call? Everybody. Everybody could. Jane Miller, Channel 11 News. Uh, she called everybody. It, the, when it hit the press, it was all over. I was big news in 1993. In, uh, you call your family? June 28th. My dad was the first call. What did he say? He was like, what? He didn't understand. You know, He didn't really understand. They knew that I was taking this test, but they didn't understand what the implications of DNA were. They had no idea. My father's uh, you know, a simple man, and he just didn't understand. He said, but we're going to get out of here. So, okay, so now you've done exactly what your lawyer told you not to do. You've called everybody. Right. Everybody now right. knows. You're, you you got to be bouncing off the walls. Yeah. Right? And yeah. then it's, after the DNA was tested and proved that you were innocent, then what happened? How long did it take to get to trial again and how'd that end up? And The deal we made with the prosecutors, if it was not me, they would have their own expert. So they sent it to the DNA lab. It took another few months. Now, this is a sad part. I can't say the other without saying this. Um, you know, 24 years. Uh, my mother passed away just a few months. Uh, 
about five months before I got out. And uh, the day President Clinton got inaugurated, um, it's a bad year, a bad time of year for me. Um, I had just talked to her on the phone a couple of days before. I was allowed to go see her body in handcuffs and shackles for five minutes. I wouldn't know about the DNA for another few months. Um, she was my biggest fan. She's the reason I could read. But she used to write me letters, and in the postscript, she would say, write is light. If you don't stand for something, you'll fall for anything. And she never liked you to sit still. She would always say, don't sit there like a bump on a dill pickle. <laughs> it used to make me laugh. She was awesome. So that's it. I mean, that's really it. It's a hard enough thing for anybody to go through. Yeah. Uh, and the idea that you were able to see her for a grand total of five minutes and in, she was never able to see you as a free man again. Yeah. Um, and, and that you were there in this. She you know, always knew, though. She always knew I was innocent. She would tell me all the time in my father would constantly ask me because, you know, he comes from a different era. Police officers don't arrest you for just nothing. Well, I didn't say it was nothing, but I didn't do it, Dad. It was different. But he told them all to go to hell uh, early on because he knew that it was screwing me around. And uh, it, was, it was obvious. So that weekend, William Sessions was the director of the FBI, called Ann Brooks, the prosecuting attorney and said, your DNA tests have come back for Bloodsworth, and it's not him. We've not only agreed with his experts, but we found another spot of semen that uh, matches the same guy that you have in the database or in the, the DNA, and it's not Bloodsworth. You better let him out. You sent an innocent man to death row and to prison. And on June 28th, 1993, I stepped out a free man. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. I bet you're smart. Yeah, and you like to hold your own in the group chat. We can help you drop even more knowledge. My name is Martine Powers. And I'm Elahe Izadi. We host a daily news podcast called Post Reports. Every weekday afternoon, Post Reports takes you inside an important and interesting story with the kind of reporting that you can only get from The Washington Post. You can listen to Post Reports wherever you get your podcasts. Go find it now and hit follow. I want to go back and talk a little bit about the actual killer. 
Okay. And how they missed him the first time and how you actually ended up interacting with him in prison, which is really a strange twist to this whole yeah, story, right? What was the guy's name who was the actual killer of this poor little girl? Kimberly Shea Ruffner. Ruffner was let go two weeks before Dawn's murder for two attempted rapes of two other little girls a year prior. The children wouldn't testify against him. He had uh, dressed up like a security guard and tried to accost him in the bushes. They were scared, wouldn't testify against him, so the judge had to let him go. And he used to frequent this area, from what I understand. Now, remember what I told you that the original suspect was reportedly six foot five, curly blonde hair, bushy mustache, tan skin, and skinny? Ruffner's five foot six and 160 pounds. Wow. So, witness identifications, big time. Now, that police report about him came in eight days before I was arrested. Cops never went back to look. They were too busy trying to fit the square peg in a round hole. See, he lived in Baltimore City, which wasn't far from the county line. He used to cross the county line. Back in those days, cops wouldn't talk to each other for whatever dumb reason. But they wouldn't chat, and that's how this thing happened. Ten years later, when they went to search it for this guy, they did. They opened up the cold case. Uh, Major Rustin Price is the one that's responsible for capturing Ruffner. The surreal part of the story is the fact that he ended up being locked up. He committed a, a subsequent crime after they wrongfully convicted you, or wrongfully arrested you even. He was free. Yeah, he was arrested three weeks after me for attempted rape and murder of a woman in Fells Point, where he busted in her door and tried to cut her throat. She got the knife from him, what I understand, and stabbed him in the foot. Cops followed him to his house from the blood trail. And that's how he got it. He got 45 years for that. Right. And that woman never needed to go through this in the first place. Had the work been done in a different and a better way, they would have gotten the real guy. So he ended up committing this another horrible crime a few weeks after he had gotten away, literally gotten away with murder. And he ends up in the same prison with you. Mm -hmm. But you don't know it, obviously. But he does. Mm -hmm. Right. He knows who that, you are. That's what he says. He said he didn't know I was in there for what he did. But I don't believe. So how weird is that, looking back and realizing that this is a guy who was on the same, literally living with you, right. who was a guy who was responsible for not only for this horrible crime against humanity, but also for a second horrible crime against humanity, mm -hmm. which is putting an innocent man, almost, almost having you executed for the crime right. that he committed. They asked him in court. He was charged with a murder, and he got life because I didn't want him to get the death penalty because I wanted him to stay alive for the rest of his life and think about what he'd done. Kirk, when you were released from prison, can you paint a picture for us of what that was like? Well, it's uh, I'm sitting in, in the prison, and my, they have, the warden let me on out, and he gave me my little bit of commissary money, and they give you a check. And so they gave me the money, and I went on out, and they drove me from the prison to the top of the hill. When I hit the top of the hill, they had a limousine waiting for me from 98 Rock. It was a local rock station. It was my dad and me and this lady friend that had kept come to see me in prison. We were in the limo, and they had a case of beer in the limo. And The limo image is great. It's almost like yeah. going from the outhouse to the penthouse. Yeah, and so yeah. I'm moving on up like George and Wheezy. So they take you in the limo. Did you go get something to eat? Did you go— uh, Oh, man, they, had, they took me around the city. There was a baseball park. They had pizza and stuff for me. They took me for a little spin around. Okay, so you drove around. Eventually you went up at your dad's house. Yeah. And then what happened at 4 in the morning? There's nobody home. Dad's gone. My mother's— you know, not there, but she's everywhere, too. All her stuff was around. And there was a toaster sitting up on the counter. So I hadn't had toast in 10 years. So I got the bread out, I got the jelly and the butter, and I put this toast in there and buttered it up, and I was eating this thing, and I started laughing. I, I just thought it was funny. I picked up the phone, and I called Bob Moore and my lawyer at 4 o'clock in the morning. I said, hey, Bob, guess what I'm doing? He said, I don't care. Okay, tell me, what are you doing? I said, I'm eating the piece of toast <laughs> and he know. just that's what he started doing he started laughing and uh, you never realize how important a piece of toast is to you when you don't have it when liberty taken away so you come out and it's interesting because for as long as I've been doing this work one of the questions people ask me the most frequently is what happens to the exonerees when they get out do they get a big check what does the state do for them 
And your case is frighteningly common in terms of the fact that it relied totally, really, on wrongful eyewitness identification, which is a factor in 75% of the wrongful conviction cases. Not the only factor in every one, but but in 75% of cases, it's it's a factor. But back to this. So were you compensated? I was. In Maryland, uh, which I understand today, they're introducing a new bill that would pass some of the stuff I had to go through in order to get my compensation. So you would you would automatically, if you get pardoned from the governor, go right to compensation after you've been erroneously, if you've been erroneously convicted of anything. So that's something I support. But there is no federal compensation for wrongfully convicted peoples. And I think there should be. And there's no innocent measure and no nothing. You, As a matter of fact, you don't have any right once you're convicted to innocence anymore. You can't argue that in a court of appeals, that you're innocent. Only after a certain period of time after you've been convicted, you have a, anywhere from 30 to 90 to, to so many days to do that. You know, you're asking for a new trial based on newly discovered evidence. You can do that, but you cannot argue innocence in a court, appellate court. I find that very bizarre, especially with the death penalty looming over people. We need compensation. These men and women need every dime and every bit of love we can give them, and uh, we don't. Amen to that. But And back to your case, how long did it take you to get compensated, and how much did you get? I got $300,000 for my almost nine years of imprisonment and two years on death row, which they never really did. They never really calculated the death row time as being a torturous act. Uh, so they gave me three hundred thousand dollars, which comes to about three dollars and seventy-two cents an hour. So you end up getting compensated, and then things get even more interesting, right? right? Because of the work that you have chosen to do and that you've done so effectively because Kirk has been one of the most effective advocates meeting with government officials, politicians, and actually you have a bill named after you, don't you? I do. It's called the Kirk Bloodsworth Post-Conviction DNA Testing Program. And what does that do? It's a federal grant program which gives monies to states to pay for post-conviction DNA testing. So that's a federal law. That's a federal law, yeah. But states can get it. And it's uh, called the Bloodsworth Program. Is named by Patrick Leahy and uh, Orrin Hatch. It took us eight years to pass that piece of legislation, and I'm pretty proud of it. There's a fellow in Kentucky named Mike. I can't pronounce his last name. He got out on it. Thomas Hainsworth from Virginia. And there was another fellow just recently got out from the Bloodsworth Grant in Illinois, I believe. Have you gotten a chance to meet those guys? I got to meet both Thomas and Mike. But there's like 30 others, you know, so they've they've gotten out of prison because some states, say like Kentucky, don't have the monies to pay for these testings. Like Kentucky's public defender system is non-existent, basically. They, they have a couple hundred dollars to represent somebody. They don't have any money. So, and Thomas Hainsworth was in there for 20-some years, and now he works for the attorney general's office in Richmond. Wow. So God bless them. How about that? Yeah. That's amazing. Take that one. <laughs> I mean, I got to take a minute to process that information. But what an exciting and what an incredible feeling that must be. Oh, I have to say that was one of the shining moments in my life. So, Kirk, you've also done a lot of work, actually, on getting rid of the death penalty. Yeah, I helped end it in Maryland. I've also worked in New Jersey, which ended it. New Mexico, I did some behind-the-scenes stuff. Connecticut, Delaware, I've seen it fall in several states. And I worked very hard in Nebraska and California last year, and it fell. But, you know, I'm going to come back. I'm not going to let them. Yeah, Nebraska and California were really terrible results. There's an example of the government, I think, putting too much pressure on a thing because they're diametrically opposed with the elected legislature of the people. The people voted for that. They vetoed and override his veto. Governor Ricketts decided to do it and spend money because his family's got a lot of money to reinstate the death penalty. Right. And that's, let me just backtrack, Kirk. So in, in, in Nebraska, what happened in the last election was that the legislature overturned the death penalty, eliminated it. The governor vetoed it. The legislature overrode the governor's veto. And then the governor financed a referendum and got and ran all these ads and got people riled up or whatever he did and then got the public to vote 
on a referendum which reinstated the death penalty. I mean, he really wants to execute people. Yeah. You know, and it's, I always find it strange too. I mean, a lot. I, the one thing I can't relate to is people that are pro-life and pro-death penalty. Like, yeah. I, I can't. I don't see how those two match up. But uh, no. that's me. And of course, in California, we had the other problem, which is that they passed this horrible, horrible referendum, which is like a speed up the death penalty referendum, which basically guarantees that we're going to execute a bunch of more innocent people. And billions and billions of dollars have flowed through that system in California, and they've done nothing. They have 725 death row people in the state of California, and they're just housing these people. They'll die of old age before they die. In the gas chamber, right? Which there. which makes it all symbolic and weird and 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 ridiculous. I mean, the you can't be around somebody like Kirk or Sonny Jacobs or any of the other death row exonerees and not feel a deep anger and just a burning desire to eliminate the death penalty when you know not only have we exonerated over twenty innocent people with DNA from death row. But also we know that a number, a large number of innocent people have been executed in this right, country. Exactly. And, I, and, and to me, the number one is too big. I don't right, care right. what your motivations are. You, it is morally reprehensible to accept the idea that we're going to execute even one innocent person. So you've done a lifetime's worth of work on fixing the system so people can get access to DNA testing nationwide. You had a bill named after you. You've helped abolish the death penalty in a whole bunch of states. It's an incredible series of accomplishments. And now the guy who was the crab fisherman is now in another unlikely job. Now, if you look at him, you say that if I, if I had to make a list, if I just met you and I was going to make a list and somebody said, what's the least likely profession that this guy could be in? I'd probably say ballet dancer would probably be number one. And number two would probably be jewelry designer, right? Okay. But you don't dance. No, but no. I make jewelry. Though. Make jewelry. So let's talk yeah. about that because I want to. Yeah. I want to give a plug because I've seen some awesome. of the jewelry and it's incredible. I swear to God, you must have some fairies living there or something that, that help you or elves. The Keeblers are out of business. Yeah, I don't, know, I don't know how the hell you do it. I mean, your hands are too damn big. But anyway, go ahead. So, how, well, how, as it turns out, you really need some strong hands to bend silver or gold. And uh, I have a business. It's called Bloodstones. It's B L O O D S S T O N E S dot com. And I've been doing it for two years. I went to Revere Academy in San Francisco, 400 and some YouTube videos later, and you got bloodstones. And so I make everything. The only thing I don't work in right now is platinum. So give me that website again, just for people. Bloodstones.com. Uh, That's B-L-O-O-D-S-S-T-O-N-E-S.com. Go take a look at it. You, you'll be happy you did. You're going to need some, uh, some gifts, I'm sure, coming up for whatever uh, holiday Valentine's or whatever Day birthday for a loved one. And Kirk's doing an incredible thing now. He's, he's actually making rings for exonerees. Which yeah, are good, which that's are, soon to come out. That's soon to come out. And, it, and this is, since I'm on your show, I'm going to break this out because they don't, they don't know this. This ring it will be free to any exoneree, death row or otherwise, in the United States. Yeah, and you can wear it, and I'm sure they'll wear it with pride. And it's also uh, it's a beautiful, it's a beautiful piece of jewelry on top of that. So check out Bloodstones.com. Last question, Kirk, for people who are listening who are feeling the same sort of burning desire that I have after listening to you speak to get out there and do something to make a difference. What what would you recommend they do? Is there a website they can go to? Is there a, what can they write letters? What should yeah, they be doing? Well, I have an organization uh, that I, I, I deal with too, and they're death row survivors. That's Witness to Innocence. Uh, Dot org. Witness to innocence.org. Witness, Witness to innocence.org. Yeah. Got it. And uh, you can go to them and check it out. But I would uh, really uh, ask people to donate to the Innocence Projects and the Witness to Innocence and these type of things. And really, whatever endeavor that uh, exonerees have in life, you should support them and to try to help them and better themselves. And the last, and this is my plug for myself. My film is out. It's on DVD. It's called Bloodsworth, An Innocent Man, and you can get it at iTunes or on demand, and uh, it's out now. So. Oh, man, I didn't even know that. So I'm going to get that Bloodsworth, An Innocent Man. Yep. I'm going to watch it. The story's on there, and it's from my point of view, so you'll uh, be able to check it in. It's, uh, it's done by Gregory Bain. He's did a really good job. You have to check it out. 
Okay, I'm going to check it out. I hope you will too. Blood's worth an innocent man. It's been really an extraordinary experience for me having you on the show. And I hope you'll never stop doing what you're doing because we need you out there. You're, as I said, you're one of the most effective advocates I've ever seen. And the record speaks for itself. Don't forget to give us a fantastic review wherever you get your podcasts. It really helps. And I'm a proud donor to the Innocence Project, and I really hope you'll join me in supporting this very important cause and helping to prevent future wrongful convictions. Go to innocenceproject.org to learn how to donate and get involved. I'd like to thank our production team, Connor Hall and Kevin Wardis. The music in the show is by three-time Oscar-nominated composer, Jay Ralph. Be sure to follow us on Instagram at Wrongful Conviction and on Facebook at Wrongful Conviction Podcast. Wrongful Conviction with Jason Flom is a production of Lava for Good Podcasts in association with Signal Company Number 1. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought... In that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. Zumo Play is your destination for endless entertainment. With a diverse lineup of 350-plus live channels, movies, and full TV series, you'll easily find something to watch right away. And the best part? It's all free. Love music? Get lost in the 90s with iHeart 90s. Dance away with hip-hop beats and more on the iHeart Radio music channels. No logins, no signups, no accounts, no hassle. So what are you waiting for? Start streaming at play.xumo.com or download from the app and Google Play stores today. All you can stream with Zumo Play. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW group. Void prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.